Father, we ask you to come now by your spirit to please uh, fill us and to speak to us through your word. Come, Holy Spirit, and help us to hear what it is that you're saying to us. Encourage our hearts, uh, Lord, enlighten us, enliven us, Lord, that we might live lives that are pleasing to you, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Um, Well, I was never a great uh, student. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm sure there's a bit of a spectrum. I was probably compensating a bit when I married Ruth. uh, And uh, maybe that's sort of why um, Acts chapter 4 verse 13 um, was always close to my heart and stuck with me from about the first time I read it, actually. I I wonder if you noticed it. It's probably uh, the memory verse, my favorite verse from Acts chapter 4 this morning. Uh, Now, when the religious leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, put your hands up, never mind, uh, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. Um, I I, I searched... uh, about 20 different Bible translations, most of them say um, they recognised that they had been with Jesus. Uh, I I think that's a a more helpful and accurate translation. A companion could be someone who just kind of uh, knows Jesus, whereas they had been with Jesus, hadn't they? For three and a half years, almost every day, they had been with Jesus, these uneducated and ordinary men. So this morning, I I, want to ask you what... What does it look like, do you think, when a person um, starts spending time with Jesus? Or, or maybe another way of putting it is, is what are kind of the signs and symbols when uh, someone has been hanging out with Jesus? What, what's the evidence when someone has been spending time with Jesus? Well, uh, that's what I want to be looking at from the passage this morning, what it looks like when we've been spending time with Jesus. And um, the first thing as we go through, I want you to notice, is that we've, we've, when we've been spending time with Jesus, we'll experience dying and rising with Jesus. Uh, it was only uh, a few weeks ago where we had that wonderful uh, commissioning uh, here at St. Philip's, and I got to choose the, the Bible readings, and, uh, and I chose Philippians 3, and one of my favorite verses, Philippians 3 verse 10, where the Apostle Paul says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. And most of us would probably go, yeah, bring on the power of his resurrection. However, the fellowship of his sufferings, well, I'm not so sure about that, thanks. I'll give that one a miss. And so far in the story of the, the book of Acts, the early church, it's, it's really, it's all been the power of his resurrection. Remember Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he's just conquered death. Uh, and, and he's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And in verse 8, he says, you will receive power. And so far, that's been the story of Acts. Uh, they wait in Jerusalem, and then uh, there's this sound of a mighty rushing wind and, and tongues of fire, and they speak in different languages. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit amongst his church. The Spirit of Jesus uh, is with them now. And then Peter, filled with the Spirit, preaches this amazing sermon. And how many people are saved? It says 3,000. Power. And then again, you get this description at the end of Acts chapter 2 of the, the early church that where, where all this amazing stuff is happening. And, and it's just this power of the Spirit of Jesus and resurrection. And then Acts chapter 3, what happens? They... There's this healing of the lame man in the power of the name 
of Jesus. And, and then Peter preached this sermon. They, they are knowing Christ in the power of his resurrected glory, now seated at the right hand of the Father. And now they get to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings because people don't like it. He's preaching. They've gathered around. This lame man is, was clinging to them. And then verse 1, the priests and the captain of the temple, remember, they're still in the temple, and the Sadducees came to them much annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there is the resurrection of the dead. Now, the Sadducees were like they were the Jewish religious establishment. They were the ruling priestly caste in Jerusalem and they had sort of come to accept the inevitability of Roman occupation and they just decided to figure out how to work with the Roman occupiers. And there's an old saying that says that um, they didn't uh, believe in the resurrection and, and that's why they're upset here and that's why they were sad, you see. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I needed a drummer there for that one. Uh, and, and, and so it doesn't. They're not just sad. Verse two, they're annoyed. Uh, and I'm sure part of what they're annoyed about is that they're looking at Peter and John, and Peter and John are doing something that they can't do, healing a layman, and they're saying something that they don't like because they didn't believe in the resurrection. In other words, they're thinking these are a bunch of nobodies from nowhere and they were challenging the Jewish religious establishment, the established religious authority in Jerusalem. Ajith Fernando writes, often when there's a special move of God in the church, the religious leaders are the ones to oppose it. And this is the story uh, in Martin Luther's story in the uh, 16th century, but it's also the story of the Great Awakening in the 18th century, where people like George Whitfield and John Wesley, they were Anglican ministers, and they started talking about things like the need to have a personal relationship with Jesus and, and the need to be born again. And they started doing things like preaching outside of the four walls of the church. And, uh, and as that happened, they started to reach the poor and the uneducated as opposed to the rich and the sophisticated. And guess what? The religious establishment was not happy. That's part of the reason why they had to go outside the four walls of the church. And you know what? John Wesley, he didn't want to leave the Anglican church. He wanted to, be, to stay as an Anglican minister. But the reason that the um, Methodist movement began is because the church wouldn't have it. He would have much preferred that, that the move of Methodism, which has spread so far across the world, would have stayed within the Church of England, the institution at the time, but the establishment wouldn't happen. In fact, they called them enthusiasts, which was a pejorative term. Uh, today we might say happy, clappy Christians, um, but it was uh, most decidedly a put-down. And so here we have uh, the Jewish religious establishment opposing this outpouring of this Holy Spirit, the, if you like, the new wine, which requires these new wineskins. Here's one thing I think we can take away from this. We have an enemy who hates us. We have an enemy who hates the gospel and the good news of the Lord Jesus, that he's alive and not dead. And as long as you're happy to sit down and do nothing about it, you'll stay safe because he hasn't got any problem with you. But as soon as you want to stand up and pray and proclaim the message of the risen king, 
then you've got a target on your back because the kingdom of darkness does not want to see the advance of the kingdom of light. And so at first that we see that the, the leaders were annoyed, verse 2. Now that would be enough for me to think twice about whether I want to continue. But not only are they annoyed, in the first half of verse 3, it says, then they arrested Peter and John. And then finally, it says in verse 3 that they were actually put in jail. They've been put in chains. But look at this. Even as they experience dying with Christ, the fellowship of his sufferings, because he's with them by the Spirit, and aren't all of these things exactly the same thing that happened to Jesus? The religious leaders were annoyed. He was arrested. He was put in jail. But look at the power of his resurrection, even in the midst of the fellowship of his sufferings. Verse 4, But, but, many of those who heard the word believed, and they numbered about 5,000 people came to Christ through the preaching of the gospel, even as the kingdom of darkness tried to shut them down and put them in prison. Friends, if you want to be with Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to anticipate the power of his resurrection along with the fellowship of his sufferings. Uh, Ernest Shackleton was this famed Arctic explorer. And when he was looking to build a team for his dangerous and daring polar expedition at the start of the 20th century, the story goes that he placed an ad in the newspaper to recruit the team. And the words went like this. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful. Honour and recognition in the event of success. Now, apparently there were some 5,000 people who responded to this man's ad. Steve McAlpine writes, I doubt if any of them asked about the fringe benefits or if they'd have good coffee. No, they were left in no doubt about how difficult and arduous the journey would be. He was up front with them in the ad about the sufferings. He was not interested in kind of attracting people through some kind of bait and switch method. And you know what? Jesus wasn't either. He said, if anyone would come after me, he or she must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. But the only difference between the disciples And the men who followed Ernest Shackleton is that a safe return is guaranteed because Jesus is alive and not dead. So make no mistake, friends, if you spend time with Jesus, if you walk with Jesus, you can be guaranteed that you will experience dying and rising with Jesus. It's the way of the cross and the way of the resurrection. But if we spend time with Jesus, we'll also become as bold as a lion. We'll become as bold as a lion. They spent the night in prison and the next day must have been terribly intimidating. Can you imagine the questions running through their minds about their future, about their family? 
And then look at verse 5. The next day the rulers, elders and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. These guys were an extremely powerful family within Jerusalem and they held power in Jerusalem, history tells us, for decades and decades. These were a powerful family. And remember, you see there, Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, where have we seen them before? Just a few weeks ago. These were the guys who put Jesus through a gruesome and bloody death. Annas and Caiaphas, it's there in John chapter 18, verse 13. It says, then they took, the leaders took Jesus to Annas who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Verse 24, then Anna sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So these crowd of men that Peter and John are standing before, we know what these guys are like. We know what they can do. And Peter and John are standing, it would have been in a semicircle, surrounded by these men. And then the interrogation begins. Verse 7, they say, By what power or by what name did you do this? Gulp. In other words, we're in charge here. This is our territory, our temple. Who on earth are you? And then in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, then skip down to verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But hang on a minute. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is dead. Caiaphas. You were there. I was there. John, Alexander. We were all there. Jesus Christ is dead. The Romans were really good at ensuring their victims on the cross were dead. And you're saying that this man was healed in the name of Jesus? And this is when the lion begins to roar. Peter says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. He's quoting Psalm 118. It has become the cornerstone. And then he says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. And you crucified him. Now it sounded just as arrogant and exclusive then as it does today. But they're just saying what Jesus said. Like in John 14, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said before Jesus was, I am. In John 6, when we have, we have it often in our liturgy, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be thirsty and whoever believes in me will never 
be hungry and never be thirsty. I mean, Muhammad, Buddha, they didn't say things like that. They didn't say anything like that. Jesus is in an entirely different category to other prophets and to other religious leaders. In fact, that's the experience of one Japanese Christian called Toyohiki Kagawa who came from a Buddhist background. It's exactly that. He says this. He says, I'm grateful for Shinto, for Buddhism, and for Confucianism. I owe much to these faiths. Yet these three faiths utterly failed to minister to my heart's deepest needs. Buddhism teaches great compassion. But since the beginning of time, who has ever said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins? These are the words of Toyohiki Kagawa. There is no other name in heaven or under the earth by which people can be saved. You see, other religious leaders say, this is the way, whereas Jesus says, I am the way. So imagine if you're in the middle of a pandemic. Not hard. But this time... It's terminal. The disease is fatal. 100% strike rate. Death. If someone found the only cure for that disease, would it be arrogant for them to share that with everyone else? No, of course not. If you were that person who found that uh, immunisation, found that medicine, would you be excited about sharing it with other people? Yes, of course you would. And so it is for us. In fact, no wonder later on uh, in verse 19, they say we can't keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. You just try and stop us. We can't help ourselves from speaking about what we have seen and heard. Jesus die for sin and then rise again to newness of life. I love that verse. It's a contender for the memory verse. There's a whole bunch in here. We can't help speak about what we've seen and heard. Great news. You see, we work for the great physician who's shared with us the only cure for death itself. They saw him crucified and then they saw him alive. They touched his hands. They saw him eat fish and bread. And he has given us the cure for death itself through his own death and resurrection. And he calls us to tell others, to call them, for everyone who will repent and turn to Jesus, they find this cure of eternal life. That's not arrogant to share that with people. As someone once said, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. It's not arrogant. And you go, beggar, well, that's a bit harsh, but just think about Peter for a second. Think about what he did on the night Jesus was betrayed. What did he do on the night Jesus was betrayed? He denied Jesus three times. How on earth could he be arrogant? And yet he was so bold to tell others about this forgiveness that he found in Jesus. Like Paul says, if God is for us, if Jesus is for us, who can be against us? 
Tim Keller, reflecting on the early church, says that it was both attractive and growing and yet at the same time hated and attacked. Power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. And this description cuts two ways. If on the one hand we experience no attacks, no opposition, no persecution for our faith, it probably means we're just being cowards, not actually taking risks in our witness, not being bold. But then on the other hand, if we experience attacks without fruitfulness and attractiveness, if we get lots of persecution but no affirmation, it may mean that we're being persecuted because we're just being annoying and harsh and critical and judgmental. Insensitive, harsh Christians will have persecution but not praise. Cowardly Christians will have praise but not persecution. Most Christians who aren't walking close with Jesus and spending time with them will have neither. But those who have a close walk with Jesus, who are spending time with Jesus, will experience persecution and praise, just like Jesus did, walking in his steps. No wonder it says in verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realised that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognised that they had been with Jesus. And so this leads to our final point, which is that if we've been with Jesus, we'll experience God's amazing grace. Peter is such an encouragement to me. He had so many reasons to feel disqualified and to feel inadequate. I don't know about you, but I can so easily feel disqualified or feel inadequate to become self-absorbed and to doubt that God would want to use me. Just think about all the reasons Peter had to doubt himself. The first one, of course, is that after denying that he would deny Jesus three times, guess what he did? He denied Jesus three times. Did you know that bit of the story? Jesus says, you're going to deny me. No, I won't. You're going to deny me. No, I won't. You're going to deny me. I will not deny you. Three times. It's poetry, isn't it? Because then what did he do three times? Denied him. And then in restoring Peter, the resurrected Jesus, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He was restored by the one that he rejected. Peter had to feel that that was at least one reason to feel disqualified. But surely the next one is that Peter was just a simple fisherman who worked with his hands. He wasn't well educated. He wasn't that smart. He was a simple fisherman. And here he is surrounded by the best and the brightest and the most powerful. How on earth could he expect to be effective in that context? Remember as well. What did he say to the lame man? Silver and gold, I have none. He wasn't rich. He didn't have money. They didn't have means. The list goes on because they say that they weren't powerful, remember? It's not by our power. We're not powerful. And it wasn't by our piety that this man was healed. How wonderful to know that God can use people who aren't particularly powerful and who aren't particularly pious. Peter says, it wasn't by my power of piety that this man 
was healed. I find that personally so encouraging because deep down inside sometimes I think that God will only bless my ministry to the level that I've had a good week and I've been particularly pious. How many of you are the same? Or in the reverse, how many of you maybe make the unlikely mistake of looking at me and thinking, oh, Kieran must be particularly pious? No, it is by grace that we have been saved, through faith. Peter says, why do you look at us? It's not by our power. It's not by our piety. Friends, do you think that's good news? Is it good news? Well, it it continues because Peter didn't even have the faith to heal this man. Peter had walked, this man was put by the beautiful gate day after day after day. Peter had walked past this man goodness knows how many times on his way to the temple, and he never had the faith to heal. But on that day, he did, and it didn't come from himself. In verse 16, chapter 3, he says, it was the faith that is through Jesus. It was the gift of faith that God gave him, the spiritual gift. All of these gifts that God gave to Peter. And, of course, they weren't very well educated either. They didn't have a formal education like the Jewish leaders had had. And by the way, the Jews did it extremely well. To this day in America, a survey will show you that the most highly educated class or group of people in the US at least are, guess what? Jews. Jews did education really well, and they still do today. But Peter had no education. And there are so many throughout history. Look, I value my education. I long for many people from St. Philip's to go and get a formal theological education uh, that's Bible-based, Christ-centered, and spirit-filled. But there are so many who never had that formal education. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist in Chicago. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China. John Newton, uh, the author of Amazing Grace, pastor in London. A.W. Tozer, a wonderful Pentecostal pastor. John Bunyan, the author of the second best-selling book in the history of the world, Pilgrim's Progress, no formal education, who, by the way, was also opposed for his ministry by the religious establishment, by the same religious establishment that opposed John uh, Wesley and, um, and George Whitfield. And, and even the Prince of Preachers himself, Charles Spurgeon, had no formal education. So many reasons to doubt yourself. So let me ask you this morning, what's your excuse? What are your reasons for why God couldn't use you? Why, for why you should be disqualified? But more importantly, what was their secret? Well, firstly, in verse 8, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit because it was in his power and his holiness that the miracle was performed. And then again in verse 13, we're told, they had been with Jesus. (laughs) Do you see how amazing God's grace is? How freeing it is? In Matthew 10, he says to his disciples, freely you have received, freely now give. No education, no money, no power, no piety, not even the faith to heal this man until Jesus gave them the faith. God's grace is so amazing. It's just like Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, who, by the way, he was on the opposite end of the spectrum to to Peter. 
Paul was incredibly well-educated. But he says to the Corinthians, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. I know I felt like a complete failure when Jesus called me. He had to humble me. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential Instagram influencers. Not many were of noble... Sorry, that wasn't actually in the text. Not many of you were no, of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Think Peter and the religious establishment. God chose the weak things of the world, like the cross, to shame the strong, those who put him on the cross. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I hope you know God's amazing grace and what it is to live by his grace his power, his goodness in your life. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we as a church be filled with the Holy Spirit, even now, come Holy Spirit. May we be ones who love to spend time with Jesus in the scriptures and with the family of God, whatever means that we can get to spend time with you, Lord, that we might become more and more like you, Lord. Yes, to know you in the power of your resurrection, doing amazing things in us and through us, but also in the fellowship of his sufferings, experiencing opposition, hardship, suffering when we walk with you. Father, please help us to speak boldly for Christ, knowing that if God is for us, who can be against us? And Father, may we know more deeply God's amazing grace. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're going to stand, we're going to sing Cornerstone. This Jesus that you rejected has become the cornerstone. Let's stand and sing.